0: Our sermon today is taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. This is the word of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the, in, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way the people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins."
1: think it's clear from our announcements earlier that Gray's much more excited about VBS than he is about Elias's (laughs) ordination. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm excited about it. Hope you guys can come to both things. Uh, If you want to join VBS, then please sign up for it on our website. And if you want to check out uh, what this ordination is all about, uh, it might edify you as well as you know the questions and and, and the inquiries in scripture that will be helpful for any Christian uh, uh, to, to figure out. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin our sermon. Father, your word today is jam-packed with a lot of things. And we beg you that you would give us not only a, a mind ability to understand it, not only a will that is willing to do it, but also a heart that is willing to embrace it. For as we will see in your scriptures, that Christianity is not primarily about a changed mind or a changed behavior. It's primarily about a changed nature. As we read earlier in our confession of faith, from dead to life and father we beg you that you would come today and do that to us and if there are people here who do not yet know you who are seeking you who are wanting to know more about you and what christianity is all about i beg you be gracious to them reveal to them your holy word and who jesus is a preacher cannot do that only you can and for those here who do have a relationship with you and have received you as Lord and Savior, I beg you that you would use your word to build them up for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning, friends. We're going to continue today in our series through First Peter. Uh, we're going through the whole book verse by verse. And remember, First Peter is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Peter to a few churches in, at the time, an area called Asia Minor. Now it is known as Turkey, okay? That's the general area that it's in. But back then, it wasn't one country with one culture. Back then, it consisted of many regions, and it was filled with many people from many cultures. And though it consisted of many cultures, there are two cultures that kind of persisted as dominant, okay? And that is the Roman and the Greek culture. That's why it's called a Greco-Roman period. Now, the Roman and Greek culture had more influence in that culture than any other culture. And it's interesting because the Roman and Greek cultures, in many ways at the time, were opposite of each other. Many of the Roman gods and religious practices back then were more liberal in their idea of morality. And many of the Greek philosophies and gods are often known to be more... Moral or, or or good behaviorally. For example, the idea of virtue and excellent living that was personified in a Greek goddess called Arete. Okay? Now, if someone comes to Christ in this region, here's the question they have to ask themselves. Where do I lump myself in? Am I now considered a moral Greek person? Or am I identified more with the free, liberal Roman gods? And Peter here, as we'll see, is saying neither. You are neither a worshiper of Roman immoral gods, nor are you a worshiper of Greek moral gods. You're a Christian. Your identity is distinct from both Roman liberalism and Greek moralism. And that's why Christians were singled out back then, and perhaps even today. Because they claimed a distinct identity than both Roman liberalism and Greek moralism, and they were a disruption to the status quo. A British historian specializing in Christian history described Christians to be viewed like this back then, not too far apart from, at times, how we're viewed today. Family members who broke ancestral traditions on the basis of their newfound faith showed an appalling lack of concern for their familial responsibilities. Appalling. Christians deserted ancestral practices for a new religion. Their exclusivity of the Christian religion, their arrogant refusal to take part in or to consider valid the worship of any God but their own, deeply wounded public sensibilities. That's the way they're described and that's the way they felt. And that's why they're reviled. That's why they're persecuted. The Roman and Greek gods that's been there forever, right? Um, The community of Roman and Greek God worshipers that's been there forever don't can't categorize them. So, if a Roman person, you know, switches and worships a Greek god, they have a community that's been there forever that protects them, and vice versa. If a Greek moral person switches and worships a Roman immoral god, then there's still a community that's been there forever that can protect them. But if a Greek and a Roman person becomes a Christian, there is no historic community there. They're a new set of small believers. They're set apart. They're they're exiled. And still... With all this at stake, with with joining a small band of brothers and sisters, still people who came to know Jesus Christ still chose to be identified with this exiled, persecuted group of people, worshiped Jesus as God. They still were willing to be reviled and mocked by everyone around them. Why? What could be so alluring about the Christian God that made them do this? And what can we learn from all this today? Well, let's dive in. There's three things I think this passage points out. Being a Christian is mainly about, one, a changed nature, not opinion or behavior. Being a Christian is mainly about, two, gospel reenactment, not self-protection. Being a Christian is mainly about, three, loving charitably, not begrudging service. Service. So a changed nature, not opinion or behavior, gospel reenactment, not self-vindication, Loving, charitability, not begrudging service. Let's start with our first one. Being a Christian is about a changed nature, not just opinion or behavior. Let's go to verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Let's just stop there. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. There's so much in that one statement. This, this half sentence is really a summary of the claim that Peter's been making the first three chapters and really the claim the Bible's been making. That Jesus Christ is God who suffered in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God who put on flesh, okay? Now, this analogy isn't a perfect one, but you know that part in Lord of the Rings where Frodo and Sam, they were captured in the top of an orc tower. I don't know the name of the tower. I researched it. I put two minutes into it, and then I just gave up because I'm not that committed to it. They were captured in some orc tower, and in order to escape from that orc tower, they had to put on orc clothing and armor and kind of had to make themselves smell like an orc so that so they can escape death toward freedom. God, the eternal creator, who is not limited by creaturely limitations, the Bible says, put on flesh. Now the analogy isn't perfect because Frodo and Sam put on orc clothing only to pretend to be an orc, but God put on human flesh in Jesus Christ, and he truly became one of us. That's the Bible's claim. That's who Jesus is. That is the basic claim of Christianity. That's why Jesus was worshiped throughout the Bible, an act done otherwise only to God alone. No one else in the Bible gets worship but God. But then you get to the New Testament, and there's this human being that receives worship. Why? Because he is God who came to us, who put on flesh to suffer and die for our sins. Being a Christian means that you believe in this claim. Now, here's the thing that gets unclear many people think that's the first step many people think that i must first think agree and believe that jesus christ is god who suffered in the flesh for my sins and then after i agree in my head cognitively with that claim then i become a christian that's what many of us think i I first agree jesus christ is lord and savior then i become a christian that is the wrong order Alright, and understanding the right order has huge implication to you as a Christian and also for non-Christians that are here for you to understand what Christianity really is all about. Let me let me show you. What does the Bible say happened first? Continue reading verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, Peter's talking to us now, Christians, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, Christians, with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It says Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for, because, whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin. Okay. When you say to somebody, do X for Y has happened, or when you say to somebody, do X because Y has happened, which event came first, X or Y? Y. Do X for, do X because Y. Why has happened. Okay, because this has happened, do this. Read verse 1 again. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, X, for because whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin. Think this way because you have seized from sin. Which one happened first? The changing of your thinking or the seizing from sin? The seizing from sin happened first. I'll explain what seizing from sin means in a bit. But for now, just think about this order. If you're a Christian here today, if you agree to the fact that Jesus Christ is God who suffered for you in human flesh, that is not the first thing that happened to you. You know what's interesting? The author of this letter, Peter, had a conversation with Jesus once, recorded in Matthew chapter 16. You remember how it went? Jesus Christ, a human being in Peter's eyes, said this to Peter. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? That's true. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter spoke to Jesus, flesh and blood, a human being, but claimed that he is God the Son, sent by God the Father in the flesh. Why was he able to say that in Matthew 16? Is it because he's smarter than other people? Is it because he's more versed in the Old Testament? No, he was a fisherman. Why was he able to say that this human being is God in the flesh? Because, Jesus said, God the Father revealed that to you. God the Father made you able to think it and agree it god first initiated an act that changed peter god made peter cease from his sinful disposition then he is able to think and confess that jesus this human being is god in flesh god first changed peter then peter thought it god first made the eyes of peter's heart see it then peter was able to think it you know what this means for you if you're a christian here today It's not that you first think and confess Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and then you become a Christian by virtue of your words. But rather, you are able to think and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that He is God in flesh who suffered for you because you have already been made a Christian. God first changed you and your heart. He made you to cease to stop from your sinful dispositions. God revealed this to you. When Nicodemus in John chapter 3 could not agree that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, when Nicodemus couldn't wrap his mind around who Jesus was, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be smarter? No. He said what? You must be born again the spirit must do that work in your heart so that you would agree and know who i am your very nature must first be changed by god then you'll be able to wrap your head around who i am then you'll be able to confess with your heart and your mouth with your mouth that i am lord and savior i'm god in flesh that came to die for you if you're a christian here today why do you agree to the gospel is it because you know we're all dumb naive people No, many of you are very cognitive. Many of you are very very well-versed in critical thinking, okay? Yet you agree to the Bible's claim of Jesus Christ being God. You're not naive. So then why? Do we agree that Jesus Christ is God because we're smarter than other people? Not really. I mean, not all of us here are that smart. (laughs) I'm not. Ask my mom. She tried to teach me math, basic math, forever. I can't. Our smartness is not what saved us. God's mercy saved us. You must be born again. Being a Christian is not primarily a change of opinion or thinking. It is primarily a change of our nature. God must first cause our hearts to cease from sin and be born again. Let's continue the passage, verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Now, now careful. It's easy to see this list and say, ah, oh, okay, I get it. What Peter's saying here is not that Christ- Christianity is not primarily about changing your mind. Christianity is primarily about changing your behavior. Because there's a list of behaviors here, right? No, that's not what he's saying either. So what's this list all about then? Well, remember I said earlier that back then there were all kinds of gods, Roman gods that tend to be immoral, And liberal in their morality, and Greek gods who tend to be more behaved and moral and virtuous in their character. That's what Peter's referring to here. Look at the first five list of uh, on five things on that list: sensuality. You're done with sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties. Okay, these were references to the worship of Roman gods. For example, Saturnalia. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Saturnalia is the goddess of Saturn. And this is true. Back then, every 17th of December, Romans would celebrate Saturnalia, and this is what would happen. Someone on the 17th of December every year is appointed as a ruler, and everything this person says, as long as it's December 17th, must be obeyed by everyone who attended the worship service. It's kind of like a 24-hour dare game that always ends up being way more wild than originally planned because it often led to the many things that Peter mentioned on the list above. Dionysus is another Roman god that was worshipped in that way, the god of wine and fertility, right? So Peter is saying here in the first five things in verse three, stop practicing in those kinds of worships. Stop making those, stop stop worshipping those gods, okay? The immoral gods. But here's what's interesting. Look at the last thing on the list. Look at number six. Peter extended the prohibition to All lawless idolatry. That means Peter prohibited Christians from worshiping any false god other than Christ. This would include not only the liberal, immoral Roman gods, but it would also include many of the moral and virtuous Greek gods. For example, as we mentioned, Arete. Arete was a god who personified virtue and excellent character. Aren't those good things? Peter's saying, you can't worship Arete either. Here's what Peter is saying He's, he's not making the claim that Christians can't drink or have sex, okay? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you can't worship any other God but Christ. And how can you identify who your God is? That's the question here. How can you know if you're worshiping any other God than Christ is by looking who has final authority about your drinking? Who has final authority about your sex life? Who has final authority about the way you choose things in life? Who is that thing? Is it a ret? Is it Saturnalia? Is it Dionysus? Who is it? The person who, who who determines how you have sex, when you have sex, how much you drink. The person who determines your life is your god. Who are you worshiping? Who gets final say about those things? Let's just take the examples on the list. Okay, this is obviously applies to all of life. But let's just talk about the list. How much do you drink? Why do you drink? Who gets final say about that? How does your drinking habits reveal who your God is? When do you have sex? Who do you have it with? Who has final say over that? How does your pattern of sexual activity reveal who your God is? Drinking parties, item number five, refers to eating festivals too. Okay, sometimes the worship of these Roman gods would often lead to overeating and gluttony. Why do you eat so much? (laughs) Or perhaps in our culture, this question may be more relevant. Why do you eat so little? How does your relationship with food reveal who your God actually is? Let it not be Saturnalia. Let it not be Dionysus. Oh, okay, it shouldn't be them because they're more liberal and immoral. God, wh- What about God's like a rat? She kind of has the same character virtues as Christ. Nope. Let it not be a rat. You shall have no other God but Christ alone. Now, you might say, well, you know, I'm here at church today to check it out, but really I'm not that religious. Really, I don't, I don't have a God like that, okay? I, I kind of decide for myself how much I eat, how much I drink. I have my own philosophy of sex and life. And that that may be where you are, and if you want to do that, that's your call. But could I be so bold to ask you to consider that if that is the case, it might be that you have become a god unto yourself. You're your own god. You determine how to do those things. You rule your life. And Peter's warning extends to that as well. So, by the way, why does Peter call Christians here to worship Christ alone and no other god? Why, why is he encouraging them to do that? Don't live like this, don't think like this, don't worship like this, worship Christ alone because that's who they are now, remember? It's their nature. God, by grace, has initiated and changed your nature, and your heart has been made to cease from sin. That's who you are. And because of that, your mind's able to accept who Christ is, and your actions and your wills will be more attuned to Christ's. And that's why they're persecuted. Jesus Christ didn't fit into any of the Roman or Greek gods or way of life. It's not immorality, but it's not moralism either. It's this relationship with the God that not many people in the culture knew. And this disrupted the status quo, which is why they're persecuted. And and these persecuted Christians, they were tempted, right? They were tempted to fall back to worshiping the false gods that their culture has produced in order to avoid persecution, in order to get peace. But Peter here he is saying don't fall back. You won't find peace that way, which leads us to our second point. Being a Christian is about gospel reenactment, not self-protection. Let's go to verse four. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Okay, let's be empathetic to these persecuted Christians. Okay, back, it's not like it is today, right? Today we have a lot of churches. A lot of churches have a big mercy ministry budget, you know, for to give to people outside of the church, and also to serve the members of the church. There was no such thing back then. Back then, there was just a small community or small communities of people who were persecuted. Of course, it'll be tempting to go back, and it's tempting for us to go back and worship the gods that is not Christ in order for us to be to, to look like the culture, right? It's tempting for them. And back then, there was no legal law of the land. It was, it, the law was vague enough to let the Christians be persecuted. Intentionally so, because the government didn't like them. So in order to have some kind of peace, many Christians would usually go back to their old habits and the old gods so that they won't look so different than everyone else. They wanted that in order to seek peace. Peter here is saying, that won't work. That won't work. Why? What is peace? I looked up the definition. Peace is this, a non-warring conditions between two estates Non-warring condition between two states. A state of mutual agreement between two entities. That's peace. And we're thinking, yes, that's peace. You know, true peace can be found when Christians at times let go of their exclusive claim of Christ worship so that others may not be offended and, re- and we would result in societal peace. That's, that's peace. Two warring parties at peace. But that won't work. The Christian won't. If you're a Christian, you won't find peace there. You know why? Because remember... What does being a Christian mean? It's not just a change of your opinion or thoughts. It's not just a change of your behavior. It's a change of who you are. Your very nature. You're born again. Now, if you are born again, if you have a new nature and you fall back to worship the gods of the culture, you may find peace between you and the culture. But you know what you'll find within you? You'll find within you two warring entities We read it in our statement of faith, the old and the new. There'll be conflict between who you are, your changed nature by God's grace, and how you live your life, and you won't be at peace. You won't be at peace. You'll be internally at war. And in my sermons, I try to address Christians and non-Christians that come, but let me just talk to the Christians for now. Those here who confess that they're with their heart and mouth that they believe Jesus Christ as God in flesh, Lord and Savior, died for their sins. If that's you, every time you you water down or betray your worship of Christ, whether through words or actions, in order to assimilate with the culture, are you at peace? Are you at peace, or do you find in your heart an entrance into a state of unrest? So my high school friends got together recently and they get together all the time and I've been meaning to join them for the longest time but I have always been said no just f- I was busy and finally I said yes to this one past Thursday because it was in Kamang and I live in Kamang so I'm like I have no excuse now I should go at least you know introduce say how to them I haven't seen some of them in like 14 years and you know when, when gatherings like that happened alcohol is involved and I had a beer hope that's okay with you and, and you know I had no problem trying to communicate my Christian freedom to them that God allows us to drink. What was prohibited was what? Drunkenness, right? God allows us to drink, but yet God is still Lord over my drinking. So I don't get to decide how much I drink. He does, okay? So uh, no problem. I enjoy the freedom of, of, of allowing, uh, 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 the enjoyment of the freedom, but also submitting to the limitations that God. No, no problem there. And plus, on top of that, a lot of my friends who are Muslim, they're actually really excited that I'm a pastor, and they're, they're like, really excited, like, look at this guy, you know. And there's this one guy, he's the nicest guy in high school. Um, every time a new friend would come in, he's like, hey, did you know that Tez is a pastor now? And I'm like, stop, like, don't do that. <laughs> it's weird. Um, so everything was going well, and we're having fun until we all sat on the table, about 8, 10 of us. And that friend that was really excited about me being a pastor asked me, so why did you become a pastor? And the whole table fell silent, and everybody looked at me. And I was like, oh, no. This is what I said. I was scared. I'm a pastor, and I was scared. I was scared of being reviled. I was, they, would never, they would never say anything. They love me. But there's something in me that was just so anxious about it. And I said, this is what I said. Do not follow this example. Um, I said, um, I am empathetic to the cross of Christ, (laughs) I I feel a connection, I feel an understanding with what Christ did on the cross for me, that's not why I became a pastor, what is that, and, 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 and somebody said, um, like, yeah, yeah, that's why you became a Christian, but why did you become a pastor, like, that's a whole nother step, and then the whole room turned silent again, looked at me again, and I said, oh, no, I have to say it, I have to say why I became a pastor. I didn't come back to Indonesia to make you more Greek morally and less Roman immorally. I didn't come back to Indonesia to make people behave better. Why did I come back? Because people need Christ. They are dead in their sin. And he is the only way and the truth and the life. And he is the only God to be worshipped. I came back because people here need Christ. You know what I said though? That's what I should have said. You know what I said? (laughs) I froze. I said nothing. I was thinking in my head, how do I say this? Well, how do I? Ha-? And, and then finally, the guy, the friend that really, you know, liked me and I was friends with, he said something to divert people's attention because he saw, my, he saw that I was feeling, he was being very kind. And we all had fun, you know. It, it was fine. Nobody probably remembered it. But my heart was not at rest for the past two, three days, even till today. I might have saved me some judgment with the people around me. I don't think they would judge me, but if they did, I I thought I saved myself of that. But you know what it cost me? Internal war and turmoil that I did not represent my Jesus well. I was handed an opportunity to share the gospel on a silver platter. This is something I dreamed about having with them, maybe after two or three years of reconnecting with them. I got it day one. I did not worship Christ at that moment. And I experienced an internal turmoil. You're looking for peace, Peter says, by watering down your worship of Jesus Christ, Peter is saying to these Roman Greco-Roman Christians, but what you'll find instead is an internal warring state of unrest between the nature I've given you and the way you live your life. Stay faithful to the gospel. Worship Christ. But wouldn't this cause conflict in the community? You know, wouldn't our unapologetic worship of who Christ is and what he's done cause this culture to be at war with those who don't agree with the gospel? Won't this way of thinking be divisive? It can be if you retaliate back. It can be if you revile those who revile you. But it won't be divisive if you're more worried about reenacting the gospel than you are about self-vindication. What is the gospel? What did Jesus do on the cross? He loved us when we reviled him. He sacrificed and embraced us when we maligned him. He let go of his rights for us when we were hurting him. It will only break the community you're in if you're more concerned about self-retaliation than you are about gospel reenactment. But if you're worried about gospel reenactment, they might revile you. What do you do? You take it. You absorb it. That won't lead to division. Now, recently, I was given a piece written by a guy named Denis Siregar, who if you don't know him, he's a political commentator, well-known in Indonesia, uh, despite all the religious um, uh, things going on, and, and he wrote a, a piece that talked about all the religious conflicts that happened in Indonesia, all the divisions, all the riots, you know, especially the one that happened recently. And he said, you know, we, you know why Indonesia is still keeping it together? Many reasons. But one of the reasons, he says, we must attribute to Christians. And the title of his article is The Maturity of Christian People. And here is an English translation of what he wrote, okay? I, I, I didn't do the whole thing. I just did part of it. He said this. One of the factors that save the situation in Indonesia from division is the maturity of the religion that has been marked as a minority in Indonesia. That is Christianity. I don't know how many times they've been provoked through the humiliation of their symbols, starting from the Bible being ripped up to be a container for people who sell tempeh on the side of the road, or putting Jesus' face on sandals. But this act of humiliation didn't go anywhere because the Christians didn't view it as humiliation but as an opportunity to share their message. Were they not upset when their symbols were humiliated? Of course, I'm sure of that. Anger is a sign for health and emotional rationality. It's just that they were able to channel their anger into a form of mercy as their Bible teaches. When they slap your right cheek, give them your left. Their comments on my Facebook page are for the most part calming. When I read my Facebook comments, I kind of even laugh because their comments are so calming, I find it even a little bit boring. It doesn't sound like many of the other comments I find on my Facebook page that sounds like exploding volcanoes. This is one of the factors that saved the situation in Indonesia from many potential divisions, the example of Christian maturity. And yes, Deni Regrar is a Muslim. You want to experience true peace? Do not divert from who you have been made to be. Worship him. And yes, as you hold fast to Christ worship, as you say no to the other gods of the culture, yes, at times the culture might revile you, they might malign you, they might make fun of you. What then? Take it reenact the gospel and when you do you bless others by displaying the cross through your deeds and if enough christians do it who knows god might use us to bless a nation that's how god glorifies himself not by giving us tons of money so that we can impress the culture with our riches not by giving us military and political might so that we can fight culture back not by giving a savvy church growth strategy so that we can sink and look like the culture god gets glory for himself by changing our natures to be christ worshipers so that we might display the excellencies of the cross by becoming living sacrifices in the culture we're in that is how god glorifies himself through our lives stay faithful don't do what I did. And when you're malign, absorb it as Christ did for you. But you can only do that if you believe in verses 5 and 6. That it's not your job to self-vindicate. It's not your job to uphold justice and uphold your rights for yourself. Look at verse 5 and 6. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, Those who, they'll, they'll have to give an account to God. You see the reach of God's justice there? It's the living and the dead. Can you judge the living and the dead? We can't. Leave it to him. He's got it. And verse 6, there has to be a small translation clarification there. Uh, the TNIV has it better, I think. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Okay, ESV says... Those who are dead is, is supposed to be who are now dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The point in verse 6 is the same as verse 5. Peter's trying to show the extent of God's judicial jurisdiction. Those who have heard and received the gospel of Christ when they're alive and now are dead, they too will be vindicated. They'll be vindicated. God's reach goes beyond any man's. It goes beyond yours. So Christian, Peter is saying here, Busy yourself with gospel reenactment, not with self-vindication. But you can't do this alone. You need a community of believers spurring you on. How do we do that? Last point, point three. Being a Christian is about loving charitably, not begrudging service. Okay, first, here's what we must do as a community for one another if we are to live this way. Okay, verse 7. We have to remember and remind each other that the end of all things is at hand. Now, when you say somebody say that, the end is near. You know, what, what comes to mind is this crazy guy on the side of the road, right? That's not what Peter is telling us to do for each other. What Peter is, is, is telling here, he's only merely reminding us of where we are in salvation history okay? Think about the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Think about the whole thing. Think about the major eras or epics or period of time in which we see in the Bible. How is it broken up? First, Genesis 1 and 2, what? Creation, okay? And then Genesis 3, there was the fall. And then Genesis uh, uh, 3 or, or 4 onwards to Malachi, the Old Testament, right? That's the period before Christ came. Everything foreshadowing to Christ, the lambs that were slain and all that kind of stuff, that was foreshadowing to Christ. And then what happened? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Christ came, right? God became flesh and he fulfilled redemptive history as promised throughout the Old Testament, okay? And then after that, Acts to Revelation, which is the period that we're in now, so to speak, is the last major period before Christ comes again. Peter is saying, remember and remind each other, this is it. We're on the last stretch home. There is no other major period of redemptive history after this. The great auditor, the great judge who's going to take into account all things, he's coming back, so stay faithful. That's one. The second thing, look at the end of verse 7, pray. Pray for yourselves that you may stay faithful and not revile, and pray for other Christians, even people in that culture who revile you. Pray for them. Look look at how all-encompassing uh, God's command here for us to minister to each other. One, it's spiritual, right? Remind each other of where you are in salvation history. He's coming back, Okay. And pray for each other. It's spiritual. Two, it's emotional. Look at verse 8. Love. Love one another earnestly, deep inside. Care for them. Mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. Maybe some people are being socially outcast for their worship of Christ by their friends or by their family. Love them. Care for them. It's spiritual. It's emotional. Three, it's practical. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality. Now, this isn't a search of who's going to host community group next, okay? This is a search of who's going to take in this family of Christians that was just kicked out of their city for their faith, and now their children have nowhere to sleep tonight. Who's going to take them in? Take them in. Spiritual, emotional, practical, Four. it's specific. Look at verse 10. Serve one another with whatever varied grace God has given you. You know, it's interesting the word varied there and varied grace that you see at the end of verse 10. It's the same word used in chapter 1 when, when Peter is referring to the varied trials, the varied persecutions that Christians will experience. So saying, use your varied grace to serve the varied Persecutions. Get specific with it, is what Peter is saying. Match your service with what is needed. How important it is for us to listen and be curious before we start fixing. Okay? It's spiritual, it's emotional, it's practical, it's specific, and five, it's exhaustive. It's all-encompassing. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, speaking and serving there, in other words, another way to say that is, by word and deed. Okay, word and deed, speaking and serving, that's another way to say in everything that you do. Remember Colossians chapter 3 verse 17. And whatever you do in word and deed, speaking and serving, word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. So word and deed, speaking and serving is another way of saying in everything that you do, serve the, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love them. Care for them. Okay. You want to be faithful Christians that, that live out who you are that is faithful to Christ worship, you want to be Christians who can reenact a a gospel reenactment and not self-vindicate and have internal peace because you're living as a Christ worshiper, then you have to serve one another. We have to serve one another spiritually, emotionally, practically, specifically, and holistically. But I want to point out one last thing. Our service to one another must not only be spiritual, emotional, practical, specific, and holistic, our service must be persistent, even when it's hard. Where do we see that? Let's go through verse, the ver- those verses again. Verse 8. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You know what that means? That means in this Christian community, you're going to experience a multitude of sins. From who? From one another. Even amongst a Christian community, because we're imperfect. Other Christians will sin against you. They'll gossip about you. They'll wrong you. Now, put yourself in their shoes. What do you do? If you're a Christian back then, okay, and you have a house, and another true born-again Christian who's wronged you, who's been gossiping about you behind your back, who who, who who's mean to you, what do you do when this Christian was just kicked out of his house because of Christ worship? What do you do? Love him. Cover a multitude of his sins and love him anyways. Be persistent. Forgive him. Verse 8. Take him into your house. Verse 9. Without grumbling, it says in verse 9. So it's not, you know, I guess I'll take you in, you, you little gossip mouth, you know? It's, I forgive you. I'll cover a multitude of sins. I love you. I'll take you in without grumbling. Now that complicates things, doesn't it? It does. It really does. Remembering that Jesus Christ, the great judge, the great auditor, is going to come back soon. That might make you behave well, right? Just like if an auditor is coming to a company. It's going to make the people in the company do all the bookings right. Or when a health inspector comes to a restaurant, it's going to make all the staff and the owner behave and clean and do the right things. But how can you understand that Jesus Christ, the great judge, is coming back? How can a great judge coming back make us want to cover internally for people's sins, how can it make us want to forgive them? That's not just a behavioral issue. That's a hard issue, right? An auditor can make a company do the right bookings, but an auditor can't make the owner love integrity. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not just a behavior thing. A health inspector can make a, a restaurant owner clean up before he comes and do the right things, but a health inspector can't make a restaurant owner love cleanliness. That, that's a uh, uh, Threats don't do that. Auditors and... Well, we have to remember, how, do we, how can we actually love others and serve others internally, persistently, forgive them and care for them, not just in external behavior, but, but internally? You have to remember that the one coming back for you is not just a great judge and a great auditor. Who's coming back for you, Christian? Your redeemer. Your sacrificial lamb. You know the Frodo and Sam example? I said earlier that they put on orc clothing so that they can escape from the tower, uh, from the top of the tower and, and find freedom. Why did God put on flesh? Did God put on flesh to escape death? Did God put on flesh to be free? No. God became the person of Christ and put on flesh so that he'd be captured. God put on flesh and suffered so that he could go up that cursed hill, and climb on a cursed cross. He didn't put on flesh to escape death. He put on flesh to die. Why? So that you may live. That's the one coming back for you. Why can Christians be so excited about the coming of God's judgment? Because we fulfilled His requirements? No, we can find rest in God's coming as judge because we know that this great judge has also offered himself up as a sacrificial offering for us. And now he comes, and now, and now he comes back and the feeling we get is not like a CEO being threatened by an auditor that we behave right, or like a restaurant owner who's threatened by a health inspector and we behave right. The feeling we get is like a bride on her wedding day as she's about to turn the corner to behold her husband. That's what's going to make you forgive people. Internally, not just behaviorally. That's what's going to make you cover a multitude of sins. How can you find the power to remain faithful to worshiping this Christ, this God? How can you love and forgive a culture that reviles you? How can you love other Christians and care for them even when they don't deserve it? It's by remembering that your Redeemer is at hand. The one who died for you is near. He's going to come back and embrace you. So love others, forgive them, be faithful to him. Don't don't sink with the culture for the sake of external peace. You're going to have internal turmoil. And if they revile you, remember Christ was reviled for you. Reenact the gospel to this culture. Care for others who don't deserve it. Because to him, as Peter says at the end of our passage, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. What a great God we have. What an amazing love we've received on the cross. That you, the eternal, infinite God, would put on flesh, would humble himself and take on human limitations so that we may be free. You died and suffered so that we may live help us be gospel reenactors, help us portray and display this love to a world that desperately needs it. Not by impressing them with our wealth, not by subduing them with our political power. Getting a Christian governor isn't or a Christian president isn't the answer for the church. It's a fine thing, but it's not the answer for the church. The answer for the church is for each of its members to fall in deep love with Christ and live their lives with integrity of the nature they have been given by you. And in doing so, when the culture can't put us in a box and may shame and revile us, we love them back. That's how the church will pursue your victory. Let us walk now into battle knowing that you have won the war knowing that there is a judge who will put all things to end and who will also love us and care for us, not because we deserve it, but because you yourself have taken the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.